I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I am Dean Detloff, your co-host as usual. And I'm Matt Bernico, your other co-host also as usual. We're, all, we're both still here <laughs> just like always. That's like always, but what is different this time around is it is the Advent Week of Peace. Last week it was hope, this week it's peace, keeping it fresh. I saw some discourse on Twitter the other day that from like some crabby liturgists who were like, uh, this whole hope, peace, joy, love business, that's uh, that's new stuff, and uh, we shouldn't do it because it's too new. And I, my hottest take right now is I disagree. I think candles can have lots of meanings and we'll all be just fine. And I think <laughs> saying peace is the with one meaning for this week is a good one, and that's what we're talking about on this podcast. Uh, that's the business as unusual, I guess. Like how old? Um, how old is this practice now? Like how new is new? Because like for some okay. for some liturgists, it's yeah. like. It's only 500 years old. Right, right. No, this person, I'm not going to say who it was. Please, but yeah. It, it won't take you long to find out if you really care. But they said that it was like 20 years old. And I know that that's not true because I am more than 20 years old. And I heard it growing up as a kid in the Catholic Church. So who, who could say? Maybe they just made it up when I was a kid and I got lucky. But it's been around, I mean, whatever. Maybe it's like 100 years old or something. Who could say? But but who cares? <laughs> Listen, I'm here to tell you who cares. If even if it's like five years old, I don't <laughs> care because we need something to organize our podcast around for a few weeks. I'm going to take this. <laughs> exactly. It's fine. It's an ancient tradition. I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's either this. It's either this or it's like I don't know, heaven and hell or something <laughs> like some weird like ancient Advent week meaning. And I don't know. There's a place for that, but it's not here. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so it's the week of peace. Here we are. <laughs> And I don't care how old this, I don't care how old it is, but we're doing it. Um, okay, so we're, in this episode, we're going to think through peace, just like we did last week. We, we have hope, now we're doing it with peace, it's going to be great. Um, this week, we're going to get into it and talk about peace as kind of like a political idea. Peace on earth, goodwill towards all people. It's in the Bible, and we love it. It's in the Bible, it's in Charlie Brown. Those are the two canonical sources mm -hmm. for us, I think. And uh, those things are great. Um, but... Uh, it's not just us celebrating, it's also the United States government. That's right, folks. To mark the occasion of the Peace Week of Advent, <laughs> they decided, the House of Representatives decided they're going to pass a $778 billion Pentagon budget. That's right. You you heard that right. $778 billion. That is exactly $37 billion more than they did last year. That's too many. It's too many billions. It's more than they did last year. And also, it had... Uh, some outrageous bipartisan support 
Um, a CNN article re- reports that it had uh, 363 yes votes to 70 no votes. I don't know who those 70 know. people are, but I like them. I think they're great. The, so those 70 people know what they're doing. I <laughs> They're great unless they're libertarians, in which case they're confused. <laughs> exactly. They, uh, a broken clock is right two times a day, and I guess they, they might fall into mm-hmm. that category. <laughs> but uh, listen, people have been arguing nonstop about this, uh, all this, the, you know, the Build Back Better plan and, um, and and trying to get bipartisan support for these things. But look, they've achieved it. <laughs> if if only if only building uh, building infrastructure and giving people sort of like a basic social safety net was as popular as buying bombs and stuff, hmm. we'd be in such a better place. Yeah. Yeah, we really would. Um, you know, seven hundred and seventy-eight billion is a number that is hard for me to think about, and I am—I'm not a math person. I don't have a numbers brain, so I always try to like take these big numbers and think of other ways of thinking about them, just so that I can like get my head around oh, yeah. how big they really are. So, I'll, here's my fun exercise I like to do. Um, there are a thousand millions in one billion, and there are a thousand thousands in one million. So 778 billion is like a ton of thousands. That's how I like to think about it. It feels way bigger if I just think of it as a lot of thousand dollar bills stacked up. That's great. That's very helpful. (laughs) Thousands of millions of thousands. That is so many dollars and I don't like it. Okay, but I'm sure there's a skeptical listener out there who's thinking, yeah, Matt and Dean, but there's probably something good that this whole big uh, boatload this whole several boatloads of money did and let me tell you what it did I can tell you exactly well I can tell you what a news article told me if you want to if you want to believe the liberal news I, I guess uh, this is <laughs> the mainstream media the mainstream media if you want to believe the lamestream media this is what it does so this is from an article from CNN uh, kind of recounting uh, what's going on with this bill the final version of the bill which leadership from both chambers have agreed contains changes to how sexual assault and harassment are prosecuted and handled in the military. See, very good. That's great. Uh, A 2.7 pay increase for military service members and Defense Department civilian employees. Uh, Great. Higher wages. And 300 million and 300 million in military aid to the (laughs) to the Ukrainian security assistance initiative. So that's cool. Got to arm some other people. Really important. Apart from that, some of the other things it goes to is um, is is a study and and like funding for quote anomalous health incidents, more colloquially known as Havana syndrome. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the bill authorizes the president to appoint a senior official to lead a whole of government effort to address incidents. Uh, the summary states: the bill also creates a Department of Defense cross-functional team to coordinate the Pentagon's response to health health incidents like Havana syndrome. Um, let's see. So there's also some stuff in there too about, um, about, uh, unidentified, uh, what is it called? They're not, they're not UFOs anymore, Dean. What's the, what's the phrase? Uh, yeah, they're not UFOs. The phrase now is unidentified aerial phenomena, AEPs. Okay. So. Or U, U, A, U, A, P. U, A, P's. Unidentified aerial. Uh, paleons. Paleons. That's great. So, okay, listen, it's not all just missiles. It's not just it's just not all tanks. It's also to fund. It's it's also to arm Ukraine. It's also to, you know, create a whole a whole piece of government infrastructure about Havana syndrome. And it's also a look for aliens. And I think some of that's probably fine. Um, just kidding. <laughs> it's so it's so interesting, actually, to read the way that like CNN reports on it, for example, because, you know, the the leading line 
is about um, sexual assault and harassment in the military. And like, you know, it's bad for sure. Uh, but the, it's framed in this kind of liberal way that kind of maybe helps you get a window into the bipartisan framing of this, too, because, you know, anytime you tell a Republican you want to raise the, the military budget, it, it makes sense that they would be salivating over it. But Democrats are super enthusiastic about doing this as well. I mean, it's not like a huge debate usually for Democrats either. And it's because they sort of uh, frame the, the budget increases in these like progressive terms or something leaving out that, you know, the what did we say the number was? It's $778 billion. You know, my guess is uh, changes to the uh, sexual assault and harassment prosecution in the military are probably a pretty small fraction of that gigantic budget. Um, not to not to dismiss it or downplay it. I mean, uh, sexual assault and harassment is extremely bad in the military. But uh, just to say, like, one thing that CNN is not going to report on is, like, how we're actually going to be uh, holding the military accountable for all that money because, like, we won't. <laughs> we won't do that. Nobody cares, really, how what, what the breakdown of that money is. And I think that is huge, right? Like, uh, every dollar has to be accounted for if there's, like, a social assistance program. Uh, but the Pentagon is, like, a gigantic, vast black hole of funding that uh, Democrats and Republicans just kind of keep throwing taxpayer dollars into every year. It's true. And you know what is also astounding to me is that um okay, 778 billion, but that is 37 billion uh dollars higher than it was last year and like we're in the United States is in one less war than they were last year as well. So it's just like what is even happening? And in worse uh, economic straits than, you know, it has been historically. So It's true. I mean, a lot going on there. A lot of, I mean, just like, I guess it tells you some things about priorities for the country and for politicians and stuff, right? Like, this is, uh, this is a, a bill that was passed with, like, very little fanfare, right? Like, nobody even probably remembers it. <laughs> I mean, it was in, it was on the lamestream media for a hot second, and now it's over, and, like, whatever. Yeah, nobody even cares. Um, yeah. It's not also, even uh, a conversation. Also, people... Yeah, uh, I think, too, like uh, people forget exactly how bizarre, like how bloated the military budget is. I mean, we'll, we'll get to it in a minute. The fact that, yes, yes, of course, the United States shouldn't have a military at all. It's a big imperialist monster and so on and so forth. But like um, even in the military that it has, like the the amount of waste that is just spent, you know, I'm not calling for like a fiscal re fiscally responsible military or anything, but just sort of saying like, it's absurd how much waste happens in the military. Uh, there's a great documentary called Do Not Resist from like 2016 or something. So it's kind of old now, but uh, it's all about the militarization of US police. And uh, one of the really wild parts of it is like, they talk briefly about the the pipeline of decommissioned and completely unused military vehicles mm -hmm. that just get donated to local police departments. So it's like, you know, some police department in like rural Michigan will suddenly get like an extremely like absurd aquatic vehicle or like amphibious vehicle that they just like keep in a garage. And there's like. Uh, there's a really fascinating piece of footage where there's a local police chief in one of these kind of tiny fiefdoms just driving around in like a gigantic decommissioned tank for literally no reason. Yeah. And like the documentarian's like, what would you uh, use something like this for? And they're like, yeah, I don't know, like for drug busts or something. And they show somebody like driving it up to like, you know, bully someone who uses marijuana, essentially. So <laughs> it's like, you know, the the overfunding of the military is bad for so many reasons. And also it has these like cascading effects into civilian life that are just uh, extremely um, awful. You know, before I moved to the big city and uh, I lived in a really small town, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, 
but it was exactly that case. Uh, we had a, uh, a a decommissioned Humvee that was painted uh, right. like like sort of like the desert camouflage pattern, and all it did was mm-hmm. it, it just sat in the uh, <laughs> it sat in the parking lot of the police department, and like it never was driven. It was always in the same parking spot every day. <laughs> so it's just like I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just like such. It's so absurd at uh, at these levels. Uh, it's hard to look at and not just think of it as such a laughably silly thing. Um, yeah. But I mean, like you said, I mean, there's, there's a, I mean, there is a reason that, that the United States invests in this kind of thing. It's because, you know, it is an imperialist power because it does care about military might above all things. And, you know, it's awful, but it does exist, I guess. Uh, so the whole thing, the whole reason we're kind of pulling this out though, is just like, I don't know. What an absurd thing to happen during this Advent time of year. I'm sure um, that bipartisan support came from a, a large chunk of Christians in the legislature. Uh, they probably didn't think twice about it. Um, or in some ways, they probably thought they were doing something peaceful if they really thought about it in a sort of twisted kind of way. Um, but we, we're bringing it here to you because it's funny, it's weird, and uh, it makes you it makes it it makes you say, huh? That's what a good it's, podcast does. It's, fu- <laughs> it's funny in that way where you're like, this is so depressing. I guess I have to laugh at how absurd it is. That's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is uh, important to sort of mark, though, that it's a fundamental contradiction with the Advent Week of Peace, right? Trying to kind of get ourselves in headspace to think about the coming of the Prince of Peace and all those kinds of big themes, peace on earth, goodwill toward human beings, etc. The good Charlie Brown message. Um, to be preparing for that season and then also to have like people in Congress who are also going to church preparing for that season and they're like passing, you know, gigantic, gigantic bu- budgets literally for funding, killing other people and uh, all kinds of nasty stuff. Um, it's an important contradiction. So it's a good excuse. It's a good way for us to maybe dig a little bit into the concept of peace. Um, we can put on our lefty Christian-y thinking caps again and see what kind of tools we can borrow and, and come up with. Um, I think, uh, you know, we, we'll probably trod a lot of ground we've talked about on this podcast before. We've talked about complicating pacifism, for example, on this podcast in the past. We'll keep doing that. Um, we've talked about sort of the social conditions for peace uh, before, and we'll do that too. But um, it's always good to kind of rehearse this stuff, especially when we have an excuse, a liturgical excuse to do so, despite what the stuff you liturgists have to say. That's right. Maybe this time it'll be better than last time. You never know. Probably. <laughs> I'm older, wiser, more peaceful. One more advent under our belts. That much more spiritual formation to get it right. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so if you listened to our podcast before, you know that we have some big, hot takes and opinions about pacifism and nonviolence and violence, all of these types of concepts. They're a big thing for us. We've talked about them, I don't know, since the very beginning of our podcast, I would imagine. Um, Let's see. It's not that we think that violence is good um, or it's somehow desirable in some kind of like weird, romantic, Marxist kind of way because... It's not. Violence is bad. I'm here to say it. I'm here to state this very controversial opinion on our podcast. I don't think violence is good. Um, It sucks. Okay. But um, pacifism within the like sort of tradition of Christian pacifism, which we can talk about more deeply in maybe a few minutes, is maybe not the best descriptor or best framework or most robust theory for talking about violence in the way that it actually works. Um, you know, in the Bible, you get all kinds of things about um, about peacemaking and violence. Um, you know, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. If, you know, someone 
hits you, you should turn the other cheek. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, you got all kinds of great stuff about blessed are the peacemakers. It's all in there, and it's great. I think there's a lot of really good ideas. Um, I think this is spun out in Christianity in some different ways, but in the end, I think what uh, you know we have to kind of confront is that um, I think pacifism is cool and has a lot of great ideas, but it, it it doesn't really help us understand the ways that violence exists structurally. Um, or if it does, its answer to it is kind of lackluster. It's lacking something, I guess, a bit. So, you know, something like a, like getting evicted from your house, that's violence, I would say. You know, being thrown out into the street and you can't live in the place where your family has lived for a while, uh, that is pretty violent, I would say. Or like um, wage theft, I think that's also pretty violent, right? Your, your boss can uh, steal the wages that you've earned in one way or another and make sure you don't get paid them. That is violence, right? Forcing somebody to live in poverty. It's as violent as it gets. I don't know. Like, of course, Which, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of pacifists would say that, too. Right. Yeah. Uh, they would be able to recognize that as as a violence, which is a good thing. Um, totally. Yeah. But yeah, their I, responses may be different than some others. That's right. Yeah. And and I mean, I don't want to speak for pacifism as a whole because I think it's a pretty diverse type of thinking. But there is a certain type of thinking in pacifism where it's like, OK, well, I mean, you should reject all violence. And I think when you think of it that way, rejecting violence is be- kind of difficult like at the structural level like how do you reject wage theft um can you actually do can you actually do that in a way that is um non-violent or is organizing a union is that somehow violent also and you know probably not but all that to say um there's like a certain slipperiness of terms when it really gets into thinking about violence structurally and, you know, the either violence or nonviolence dichotomy really breaks down and becomes quite complicated. So I think something that Dean and I do a lot, or at least something we talk about quite a bit, is like the ways that Christian pacifists do this well and don't do this very well. And I think there's, you know, I, I think Dean and I are both people who are really formed and influenced by Christian pacifism as like a particular type of idea. Um, but I think we also have our own struggles with it. So, Dean, let's like wade into that conversation a bit here. When we're talking about Christian pacifism, what kind of trends are we talking about? Who are we talking about? Like, what's going on with that whole milieu? Yeah, I think it might be easy to sort of break it down into there is a sophisticated form of pacifism that I have a ton of respect for, even if I have some kind of, I don't know, differences of of commitments, I guess, is maybe the best way of, to, of putting it. Uh, and then there is also a form of pacifism that I think is kind of a... Uh, I don't know, like a more sort of adolescent excuse or or like a domestication of that more radical and sophisticated approach. So let me start with the one I don't like first, and that way I can end on a positive note. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the one I don't like is a kind of commitment to Christian nonviolence that uh, sounds really radical rhetorically, right? It'll be like, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I reject all forms of violence. And that sometimes spins itself out into... Um, these kind of weird statements where like uh, a pastor or a theologian might say something like, you know, Jesus wasn't left or right uh, or center or anything like that. Um, Jesus was just nonviolent. And like, that's all there is to say about it. And this oftentimes, uh, you know, I can kind of understand where the impulse comes from, but it doesn't uh, allow us to actually see the important differences that do actually Uh, exist among different political options or strategies or groups that we might consider. And it sort of sidesteps the question rather than putting it in a new new light, which is, I think, what a lot of these kinds of pacifists are trying to to do. 
Um, so, you know, one example, uh, I will pick on him because he's famous. Uh, Brian Zond, a guy, a pastor, a writer, <laughs> uh, a person in the world. Um, he has this kind of take. And this is the person I sort of have in mind, maybe as one poster child, I guess. And I'm thinking of this one uh, Twitter exchange that he had a long time ago with a number of folks where he had said in his church, there are both undocumented immigrants and ICE officers. And like, isn't that a picture of the kind of nonviolent way of Jesus to sort of, you know, bring a community together where these people can pursue whatever it means to follow Jesus in the same place. And it's like, well, not exactly, right? Because there's a structural violence that is basically being baptized when these two people are kind of in the same space without the same kind of uncomfortability. Um, so just to sort of maybe put one example to it. So that's the kind I don't like. I don't like it because I think it's a bit lazy. I think it hides behind a radical rhetoric that is not followed by any radical actions or politics. Uh, but there's a good form of Christian pacifism that I have a lot of respect for. I think the, the Christian peace movement is one of the biggest gifts that uh, Christians in um, the U.S. and Canada have given to the world. So by that, I mean... Christians like uh, Daniel and Philip Berrigan, right, or Dorothy Day, these Christians who are kind of willing to, uh, um, because of this maximal demand of total nonviolence, like they will steal uh, Vietnam draft documents and burn them in the street, right? And then they'll go to jail for that. Or uh, even people like Martin Luther King, right? People who have taken a nonviolent strategy and uh, because of their commitment have tried to get get gains with, you know, different varying degrees of success and so on. So I have a lot of respect for that kind of pacifism. I think most recently, uh, I've been thinking a lot about Christian peacemaker teams, um, especially because Matt and I went to a, a rally that was in part um, organized by them here in Toronto for uh, Wet'suwet'en uh, Solidarity. And uh, Christian Peacemaker Teams is a really cool organization. They are a nonviolent organization, but uh, everyone I talk to who's part of CPT has a really nuanced opinion about how they relate to violent situations. So, for instance, they accompany people in places like Palestine or in Colombia and here in Canada in uh, Wet'suwet'en territory and so on. And when things do get violent in those places, they don't sort of wag their finger at, like, the oppressed. You know, they don't wag their finger at Palestinians throwing rocks or something like that. Um, instead, they say, well, we are nonviolent, and in our capacity you know, what happens in those situations is we observe what happens, we try to sort of provide a truthful witness and account of what's happening and so on, but they don't see their position as like, you know, moralizing against people who are oppressed. And that is a position I can really get behind and something that, you know, like it just is the case that that sort of pacifist commitment is actually what draws them into that more deep analysis of like structural violence that they're showing up for and so on. So I have a lot of time for that. Maybe we can talk about how to complicate it later, but I'll end on the positive note. Those are the good pacifists. The, one who, the ones who are like, you know, they don't turn their pacifism into like a big moral badge that they can use or like a kind of rhetorical radicalism, but uh, it's something that really draws them into the struggle. Yeah, yeah, I think that's about right. I mean, I was, you know, when I was an evangelical, I think I was really um, motivated by the idea of Christian pacifism, but it was definitely not that one, <laughs> maybe because I didn't know yeah. that it existed, but... You know, it was definitely like the uh, the cool rhetoric and like seeming very radical. But, but when you get down to it, I mean, it gets very complicated and very hard. And uh, Christian peacemaker teams are such a great example of like um, what it looks like to be really committed to, you know, being with people and um, being nonviolent and stuff. I think that's really 
a great example. Well, there are also all kinds of, I think, very interesting characters from the history of sort of like, I, I don't know, like <laughs> more radical types of Christianity. Um, we can talk about a lot of them, I think, um, like the Berrigans and, um, you know, like Leo Tolstoy, I guess. <laughs> Leo Tolstoy is a weird character, though. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not as cool. Definitely not as cool. That's <laughs> for sure. Uh, but the one person that I have learned a little bit about in this past year who I think is actually very interesting on this particular topic is Benjamin Lay. Um, okay, so you might remember a while back we did an episode with a guy named Marcus Redeker, who is a historian. He wrote a book about Benjamin Lay. And uh, I don't know, a really fascinating character. I think that um, it would be great for more for more Christians to learn about this person, especially in this particular time. I think in 2021, it's exactly the time to learn about Benjamin Lay again. Um, so Benjamin Lay was a Quaker. He was born in 1682 and then he died in like 1759. So, um, you know, the, the time period is quite different. Uh, the context is quite different. Um you know, sort of not even not even a, a United States citizen, if you think about it. Uh, but he was uh, born in England. He lived life there as a Quaker. Um, and uh, he he was really influenced by like a lot of the earlier Quakers who had, I think, more of a radical bent to them than um, maybe some of the Quakers of his time. And uh, in that time in England, he, um, you know, was really inspired by that. But but ended up being like really ostracized by the larger community for not quite for not like, you know, having the same sort of radical streak as he did. Um, he and his wife ended up moving to Barbados and he became like extremely radicalized there uh, against slavery. I mean, he was against slavery for sure in in England, but like in Barbados, I guess it was sort of a whole nother story. The uh, the culture of slavery was, I guess, different and far more brutal. Um, I mean, slavery is always brutal, so I don't know. That's saying something, I suppose. But anyways, he and his wife, like, they decided that they were going to be abolitionists, that they were going to do whatever they could to sort of, um, I don't know, to like, I guess, um, to, to be with the to be with the, the enslaved people in Barbados. And like, it ended up kind of driving them away from it, uh, away from Barbados, because they like, I don't know, they, they were facing persecution as well. Just like such a, a kind of intense thing to live through. So they moved to the United States and decided they were going to be Quakers there. And um, and just like in England, just like in Barbados, uh, and then just like the United States, um, their like abolitionism really got them into a lot of trouble with their local Quaker meetings. They kept getting tossed out. Um, everyone was constantly mad at them. Benjamin Lay got the worst of it, like kind of some physical abuse. But like he continually put his life on the line for something that he like really believed in, like the abolition of slavery, which is good i guess but like you know a tough thing to do when your entire community is like clearly hates your guts because of it but i think what's really interesting about benjamin lay so i mean he's an abolitionist i think that's that's super fascinating and, and more to say there i mean he thinks that you know it's it's absurd for uh humans to own other humans i think i mean and i like i agree um but benjamin lay was even kind of radicalized even even a bit more he would he ended up being sort of a vegetarian for the same reason that like being brutal towards another creature was just like not something that he kind of could square away with in his brain um but then like so you know he's an abolitionist he's a vegetarian but then it kind of bled out into all these other parts of his life where he kind of let he, he let the pacifism the, the sort of practice of pacifism like really consume his life in a, a fascinating way where in, in Barbados, he witnessed slaves picking um, sugar and like kind of processing sugar. And he saw them, you know, they would get like whipped or beaten for doing 
I don't know, whatever, something wrong. And like, you know, their blood would mix with the sugar. And that was like a, a, a point in his life where then he was like completely anti-sugar. He wouldn't take sugar in his tea or whatever. And like, that was a big thing that people always questioned him about. Like when he would go to dinner parties, um, uh, he ended up like even eschewing sort of like the, I don't know, even like extremely normative types of comfort, like living in a house. Uh, he and his wife both decided that they were going to live in a cave. So they did. Um so radical vegetarians who are against sugar, who live in a cave, uh, who are also abolitionists. Um, then on top of that, uh, if that, if all of those things wouldn't make him unpopular enough, um, he did these sort of like really wild and interesting acts of political theater in these Quaker meeting houses. Um, there's a re- really recently, just like a few weeks ago, a, uh, a graphic novel about Benjamin Lay got, uh, came out. And the opening pages are him um, in a in a Quaker meeting house, and he's stabbing a Bible with a sword, and then like all of this like um, all of this like fake blood comes out. It's like berry juice, but it it's like the 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 Bible starts oozing out blood, and then he's telling everybody, you know, the uh, the evils of of slave owning, and you know that makes you an apostate of of Quakerism and stuff. There's some other great stuff too, where um, man. Uh, where Benjamin Lay, there's like the scene in the graphic novel, I think is really perfectly drawn and illustrated, but he's, uh, Benjamin Lay is walking in the snow and he, he doesn't have, he has, he has, uh, only one shoe on and his other shoe or his other foot is just barefoot. And someone's like, Benjamin Lay, what are you doing? It's snowing outside. <laughs> and he's like, well, um, you know, you have slaves in your field that are, are in the same dress as me and whatever. And, and, um, this is, you know, like I'm only showing you what, what you put them through or something. And just like some really great moments where he was like a uh, very in your face to other people about sort of like the, um, you know, the brutality that they, that they're, you know, perpetrating in their own life. Um, anyways, all that to say, Benjamin Lay, I think is a really interesting example of pacifism because it's not just sort of like, um, it's not someone who's just thinking about it in terms of like a lifestyle or something. Like, it's not like a, it's, it's not like, you know, whatever, Jesus is a pacifist and, like, it doesn't really matter. You should just be nonviolent. It's, like, someone who's, like, trying to find all of the places in his life, you know, triangulating the violence in your life and then trying to, like, minimize that as much as you possibly can. And, you know, there's, like, a certain calculus to that that's kind of, like, um, frustrating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But also there's something, like, really admirable about it, too, Mm -hmm. that you would, um, you know, you would actually do that type of work to really, like, witness to those types of evil and, and, and try to, like, stop doing them. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting how Benjamin Lay is a character who appears as capitalism is really emerging in a, in a kind of global system. And yeah. so many of the uh, things that he sort of intuits just about his reality are are not changed, right? With all the changes that have happened with capitalism, uh, all the kind of accelerations of many of the things that he was dealing with, uh, nevertheless, like, you still have to be an abolitionist today. <laughs> you should think very hard about uh, your food production and vegetarianism probably today. Uh, you should think really hard about where your commodities come from, right? Uh, all these kinds of things are still present with us, unfortunately, um, even worse than they were in whatever the 18, 18th century in many cases. It's true. One more thing to note though, too, um, Benjamin Lay, I mean, he died before, um, I mean, the emancipation of slaves, obviously. Um, but, uh, he, uh, you know, around the end of his life, um, a lot of Quakers who were previous slave owners were kind of coming around his position. Like it was definitely like, it it was becoming more and more the popular decision by the, er, the popular position by the end of his life. So it's like, it's not like he did all this and like, it didn't have any effect. Like it kind of changed Quakerism in the United States. Um, 
for better. All right, let's draw a bridge then. Uh, Benjamin Lay, very cool historical precedent, a person you should, I agree, every Christian should know about him, um, and we should think about maybe how to transpose some of his intuitions into our own time. Uh, But one wild thing about Christianity is uh, there are people who keep sort of stumbling on those similar ideas. And uh, I mentioned one of them earlier, um, Daniel Berrigan uh, and Philip Berrigan, too, and lots of other people, too. But Daniel Berrigan in particular is somebody I always think about, uh, especially when I read about military budgets. I think about Daniel Berrigan. Uh, Berrigan was a Jesuit priest. He died just a, a few years ago. Uh, are a super radical pacifist. And uh, I wouldn't say that he was like, you know, comparable to Benjamin Lay. They're different people in lots of different ways. But uh, <laughs> somebody who is still carrying on even that kind of performative um, mode of critique. So I alluded earlier, I, I, I maybe I should have paused to break it down. But I alluded to, you know, this uh, some radical pacifism in some cases has led people to do wild things like stealing documents, uh, Vietnam War draft documents and burning them in the street. So Daniel Berrigan and a number of other people, eight other people, they had this group that came to be known as the Catonsville Nine. They they stole these documents and with homemade napalm burned them. You can like look it up on YouTube and see some very cool kind of haunting images of them like praying around the uh, burning draft documents. Um, But that was like Daniel Berrigan's sort of uh, approach um, to do these like almost, you know, these spectacular sort of uh, protests of the war machine. You know, this is like at the height of the Vietnam War. And then afterwards, he was also a poet and really brought that sensibility into his life and political work. And uh, a a person that I I think is always really inspiring. you know, I mentioned the peace movement is probably the the place where the Christian left in the U.S. and Canada um, had a, a sort of outsized role or like a uh, it's a big gift that they have given that that our Christian community has given um, to the Christian left at large. You know, straight from the imperial core is this really strong witness against things like nuclear weapons or things like uh, the arms trade and so on. And you even get committed pacifists like Berrigan, you know, going to places like Vietnam to try to participate in sort of peace talks and things like that there. So um, I think it's really interesting to kind of just figure out where these characters pop up and what it means to sort of take that radical pacifist demand so seriously. Or put your comfort and freedom at risk. And there's something about that maximal demand of pacifism that like you said, Matt, it can lead to some like weird moral calculus that can be very frustrating and annoying and probably not a very fun way to live your life. But uh, yeah, also um, as a result, you know, it can also lead you to take other actions that other people won't take because they don't have that same kind of maximal demand. So it's a it's an impressive thing. And, you know, whatever my other reservations are about pacifism in a theoretical way, we could talk about that in a minute. Um, I think it's important. It's important that that tradition exists in the Christian tradition. Yeah, I agree. Um, the maximal demand thing, I think, is such a big a big part of it, right? Like, there is a type of immature pacifism that makes the maximal demand, like, it fetishizes it and makes it about purity rather right. than, like, what it's actually supposed to be about. Like, you know, if you're, if, if you kind of pick up that maximal demand and it leads you to do something, you know, some type of direct action or, or like, or even, like, be a vegetarian or whatever. <laughs> I mean, or or not, I don't know. Um, or or make sure that you're only eating animals that like a local butcher is killed or I, I don't know, however you work that kind of calculus out in your head, you know, like whatever. I think that's fine. Um, 
but like if if the point is to um is to like do it so your hands aren't dirty particularly or something and and you kind of fetishize that as being like you know that's like the moral choice or whatever it ends up getting pretty hairy right like to a certain extent like you know there's no because of the way that capitalism works there's really no there's no ethical consumption for capital right that's like a phrase that people on the left throw around quite a bit Mm -hmm. but it's true like um everything with that's caught up in like the supply chain and like in the larger value chains of capital it's like it's dirty it's gonna it's like it requires exploitation to make it it, that's just kind of like the short of it and there's nothing you can kind of do to get away from it you know but to be but to try to be a pacifist to try to like thwart that or to kind of come out clean that's to me like where pacifism like rubs me the wrong way where like mm-hmm. you have some kind of moral superiority but like if you're taking up that maximal demand and you're trying to like do harm reduction or you're trying to do something else i feel like i have a lot more time for that yeah well um all right we've said a lot of good things about pacifism and it's great people should keep saying good things about it but uh we should also maybe talk a little bit more about some of those shortcomings or maybe not shortcomings but let's just say differences of opinion (laughs) to be more (laughs) diplomatic and um talking about berrigan and what you were just saying too matt that kind of concern around purity i think is a good excuse to talk about one of our other favorite priests we're always going on about on this podcast uh ernesto cardinal um, <laughs> exactly, Cardinal alert. Um, Ernesto Cardinal was a, a Catholic priest who also just passed away last year um, in Nicaragua. He was part of the Sandinista Revolution, an incredible revolutionary priest. He became uh, the Minister of Culture in the Revolutionary Government in Nicaragua. Um, just a lot of fascinating stuff going on there, as you might guess. Uh, he, Cardinal, had been in the U.S. for a while. He lived with Thomas Merton for a little bit in his uh, abbey um, and was, you know, living a monastic life and eventually went back to Nicaragua. So he had this kind of interesting relationship to the U.S. Catholic left, and that included uh, Daniel Berrigan. And there was a really famous um, sort of exchange that Berrigan and Cardinal had. Uh, Berrigan wrote an open letter to Cardinal that was published in, I think, the National Catholic Reporter, probably, or something like that, at least. And then uh, Cardinal responded in a number of different um, contexts. And it's super fascinating. So what you get in Berrigan's um, letter is what you would probably expect, a, a pacifist um, kind of uh, approach. I mean, he says in the letter that he sympathizes with the plight of the Nicaraguan people and and so on, and I have no doubt that he does. Uh, but nevertheless, he basically has, he delivers this kind of impassioned moral principle to say, you know, no matter what, though, bloodshed is bad and, and guns are bad, and, and that's that, right? The revolution itself will kind of naturally corrupt everybody who's in it. Um, Cardinal didn't like that <laughs> very much as a person like yeah as a person who had you know uh spent time in the revolution and was now part of the government and uh if you want to read something that i think is one of the coolest reflections on this uh conversation or debate uh it, there's actually a really cool blog posted um it's hosted at pax christi usa pax christi is an international nonviolent organization in the catholic church uh the little blog here is called Father Ernesto Cardinal, Visionary Poet and Complicated Voice for Justice and Peace. It's by Dan Moriarty, who's with the, the Mary Nollers. Um, so it's really good. It's a perspective written by a pacifist person uh, about Cardinal, kind of remembering his life. And uh, I'll just read one cool little bit that he uh, uh, has here. So 
In a speech in Germany in 1980, Ernesto Cardinal offered a poignant rebuttal. I hope even the most ardent pacifist would pause when confronted with these words. This is the, you know, the editorializing. Here is Cardinal. A North American Jesuit, a friend of mine, and one of these uncompromising pacifists wrote that no principle, however high it might be, weighs as much as the life of a single child. I answered him that I agreed with him completely that the Sandinistas were fighting for the lives of thousands of men and women, old people and children who are murdered day by day, and that no principle, however high it might be, not even that of uncompromising pacifism, can weigh as much as the life of one of these children. And I think that sort of sums it up for me, right? Like, <laughs> violence is always bad, 100%. It's uh, never a good thing. But when we think about revolutionary situations or when we think about what it means to live under a dictator like Somoza or something, or when we think about, you know, real history of people taking up arms, making that extremely difficult and challenging decision to, to do that in a country like Nicaragua, um, it at least encourages us to... I think, widen our scope a bit and try to eschew those positions of purity uh, and just try to, uh, you know, sympathize with what Cardinal is saying. It's like on behalf of the fact that uh, children shouldn't have to lose their lives. Sometimes uh, people are, you know, driven to take actions that are not uh, the direct actions that Daniel Berrigan took, you know, something bigger, riskier, and uh, yeah, maybe even a temptation. And I think it's uh, important to sort of leave that door open as complicated as that conversation is. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, you have to think like, well, what's what's the alternative, right? In those moments, um, the, the alternative is to live under a dictatorship. I don't know. It makes sense, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't I'm not like recommending violence or whatever in, in any way. But like, I mean, I agree with Cardinal. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I often think, you know, like I'm not a very violent person by disposition. I would not be of any use <laughs> in a violent situation. <laughs> um, I wouldn't make a good draftee for anybody, <laughs> including people I agree with or whatever. Um, it's just not not really in my nature. Uh, but at the same time, it's like I think maybe that's one reason I appreciate CPT so much. Right. It's like it, it's a sort of recognition that. uh they these are people who are like, well, we're not really going to do the violent side of it, but we're not going to take this kind of approach that Berrigan took to Cardinal, which is to, you know, get up from a, a certain pulpit and preach to somebody in the middle of a revolutionary situation in a glo global South country and sort of presume that uh, the moral principle kind of speaks for itself almost, which is what Berrigan sort of does. And yeah, it's important to to see, you know, peace is such a complicated word because, of course, peace is, uh, uh, you know, it's a way of life for sure and all that kind of stuff. But peace is also the achievement, uh, the result of, of uh, lots of processes, right? You can't really have peace under a dictatorship. It's hard to live a life of peace under a dictatorship and so on. And again, when people make that extremely difficult decision to take up arms, uh, it's important too to recognize that they may very well be doing that for the sake of peace, not as a betrayal of peace. And that's a an important thing to just kind of keep in our brains, especially when we talk about people who are far more oppressed than we might be. Yeah, totally. You know, as as we've been thinking through it, I've been thinking a little bit about the a phrase that uh, you hear in the labor movement every now and again. It's kind of an I guess sort of an old timey phrase, but you still hear it quite a bit. Uh, the term is labor peace. Um, mm. So when uh, if you're in a union and you have a contract, 
um, in your contract, there is, I mean, I would imagine <laughs> for 99% of people, I don't know, maybe, I, maybe everybody, I really don't know. Uh, there's a, a what's called a no strike clause where if as long as your contract is uh, is existing is before it's you know it's not expired or whatever you can't you agree not to go on strike. There's there's a piece mm-hmm. uh, because you've come to an agreement and like everyone sort of achieved what they wanted in the contract or not really but you know you've come to things that you can kind of like live with. Mm-hmm. So anyways, it's, it's that it, that that's the feeling that I guess um, I, I I'm thinking through when we're, we're talking about peace. It's like well. Um, it is sort of like a struggle. It's a negotiation. It is um, maybe tense at some points. Uh, maybe there's even like an end to it <laughs> sometime in the future. Who knows? But it's also just like uh, it's a moment where no one uh, no one's going to lash out immediately. But it's sort of a hard one negotiated type of situation. Yeah, I think that's good. Right. And and again, just seeing peace as something you have to work for and yeah, something that might also at some point require you to go on strike if you want to maintain that piece or get it back, uh, you know, all those kind of complicated pieces. Um, you know, it reminds me, too, I've been reading a bunch of stuff in just Catholic social teaching lately for lots of different uh, practical reasons in my life. And uh, I was uh, rereading Fratelli Tutti recently, Pope Francis's encyclical from last year. And I came across this really good passage where he says, uh, we can aspire to a world that provides land, housing, and work for all. This is the true path of peace, not the senseless and myopic strategy of sowing fear and mistrust in the, play- in the face of outside threats. For a real and lasting peace will only be possible on the basis of a global ethic of solidarity and cooperation in the service of a future shaped by interdependence and shared responsibility in the whole human family. And the short of it, I think, is, uh, you know, a world that has land, housing and work for all that is a peaceful world. And I think that really changes the game, right? Like peace isn't just a, I don't know, a demand of like being nice to other people, which is what I think the the kind of trendy uh, hipster Christian pacifists often think, right? If you're like upset, then you're not doing it right or something. Uh, but rather peace is is this uh, the, the social consequence, right? Um, another thing that kind of comes out elsewhere in Catholic social teaching is that peace isn't the absence of warfare. Um, it's the, the the result of lots of hard work that people do every single day to try to create a more just society. Or like uh, Pope Paul VI had this famous phrase where he said, if you want peace, work for justice. Um so I think also just kind of framing peace in that way helps to avoid the moralism parts a little, which is to say, you know, peace is a, a horizon that we're working toward. And anytime you're working toward a horizon, you're going to have to make compromises or think very strategically and carefully about how to get there. And when you start thinking in those terms, you know, I think it's it's sort of a more um, it's hard. It's hard to figure out the right adjective. Like the words I don't want to use, but kind of I'm like circling around in my head are terms like it's a more mature way of thinking or like a more uh, sophisticated way of thinking. I don't want to say those things because I don't think that like pacifists are immature or like simple or not sophisticated. But it's just to say that there's something about that kind of bigger sense of peace that can, I don't know, get us further. And I, I should say too, pacifists, I think, also have that that idea that peace is an achievement, right? Like sophisticated pacifists have that idea. But uh, in terms of the means that might get to that end, it's important to, uh, you know, recognize that there are unfortunately times when the path to peace looks uh, <laughs> looks like a bigger compromise in some places than others. I guess I could put it that way. 
Yeah, it's true. I mean, when all of society is sort of predicated on the struggle of class against class, it you know, um, uh, a real easy piece is not something you're going to be able to come by. Right. Um, you have to find ways to resolve those contradictions, and um, and uh, I don't know, it's not always going to be like people talking at a table nicely. I suppose. Yeah, and you know, like I said, it's uh, I I think that pacifists and non-pacifists can actually travel very, very far together um, on that path, sort of thinking of peace as an achievement and the result of land, housing, and work. There's obviously, like, I mean, pacifists have been some of the strongest people in the, in the history of the world also fighting for those very things, right? Uh, so I think it's important to see that. And maybe it's also, it's important that pacifists exist too and that we have this bigger conversation about peace because there are people on the left who, like, fetishize violence in a really weird way, even, like, yeah. a moralistic way, where they'll be like, you have to be violent at some point or else you're like not hardcore enough. And I think that is stupid <laughs> and also extremely dangerous. Uh, yeah. You're not going to get anywhere with those kinds of ideas. Um, yeah. Not only is it stupid and dangerous, it's also just like uncreative, I think. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, like a minute ago, I just said, like, you know, within if your entire society is predicated on class war, you have to resolve those conflicts. And, like, that's true. But like, it doesn't necessarily mean. You know, it it means whatever the historical conditions yeah, <laughs> mean. <exactly>. It means <laughs> it's like whatever, whatever the situation kind of calls for, I guess. But like, um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, thinking that it has to be like the <laughs> like the Bolshevik Revolution or whatever is like wrongheaded. <laughs> or thinking that you could even pull that off in 2021 in the United States when the U.S. Totally. just passed a like 778 billion dollar military budget. Like, I'm well, sorry, it is not czarist Russia. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Or it's always like really bizarre too when like um I, I don't know this is something I, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before but like um uh uh, uh Arce he he won in in Bolivia and like you know Moss is back in power in Bolivia or whatever and then people on the internet were like okay great so now they have a so, like a socialist president again and like when does the, the protracted people's war start and it's like right, right. hopefully never yeah, <laughs> like, what exactly. are you talking about. Yeah. Just like, you know, a weird, uh, a weird assumption that there's like that there is like a, a weird progress narrative that like has to be sort of fulfilled before you can kind of like resolve class struggle. Right. I mean, you know, that's in Marxism for sure. And there's like some problems with that as well. But it's just like thinking that you have to resolve it in this like uh, <laughs> this way where where these particular types of struggles with really violent characteristics are always necessary is just like a very bizarre way to live your life. Yeah, I mean, Marx himself was open to the possibility of a nonviolent way to achieve socialism. He was not optimistic about it, <laughs> for sure. But um, he made some allowances for it in his writing, especially in his late writing. And the the whole thing of it was, is the, for Marx, is the labor movement developed enough to do this, to pull it off through parliamentary processes or, or you know, other peaceful means? And Marx's thoughts were, I guess, if you can do it, you should do it, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. try to do that if you can do that. And but Marx just had this kind of recognition that, you know, once people start getting power, usually people in power don't want to just kind of hand that over out of the goodness of their hearts or because they see, you know, the writing on the wall, right? That that uh, is not typically how it goes, um, even though it would be preferable. So it's just kind of an awareness, I guess, of of history in that way. It's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, Marx says that. And I think, I mean, I think he's right. And then like, you know, if you look at the history of Latin America, you see how these things can play out in, in a whole bunch of different ways too. Right? right. Like violent and nonviolent alike. So I guess all that to say that there's like, there's no set course for how history has to be or what the struggle for socialism has to look like. But 
Um, there are certainly better and worse ways to think about uh, the end goal of peace, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, so it's the advent week of peace. Uh, let's see, where did we get? We were talking about pacifism. We got through a couple of, of pacifist heroes, and now here we're at the end talking about peace. I think, uh, I don't know, for me, the thing I've been thinking about this whole week has really just been that structural piece, land, housing, and, and work. I think, you know, Pope Francis, he's not going to come out and say that we should have a socialist church or whatever, but I don't know how you get land, housing, and work for all under capitalism. I think you, by definition, can't do it. So it's really important to to recognize that if we want peace, we have to work for a just economic structure that is not going to be a capitalist one, right? Um, socialism looks different in lots of different parts of the world. It will look different in the United States and Canada than it does in whatever, Cuba or Kerala, India or <laughs> wherever else. But it has to look like land, housing and work for all somehow. And that is the path to peace, I think, right? It's not just sort of being nice to people not just being like Jesus didn't take sides or Jesus, uh, you know, doesn't uh, doesn't like people getting riled up about military budgets or something. On, on the contrary, it means you have to really commit yourself to, uh, you know, to to doing that, whether that means <laughs> supporting the labor movement, uh, supporting tenant associations, supporting whatever um, peasant associations abroad, <laughs> however that looks, uh, it's really important to, uh, or, or, or land defense, uh, in, in Canada and the U S even, right. It's important to kind of look for those opportunities to, uh, uh, see the path of peace as a, a path of, um, a, a social transformation, I guess. There you go. That's great. <laughs> All right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. That was my that was my quickest ever outro, I think. Um, but now I'm going to slow good. it down. I'm going to slow it down a little bit now to tell you that um, supporting us on Patreon is really great. Um, if you do it, you can get an invite to our cool Discord channel. You can get a uh, you can get the behind the paywall podcast called the Lock In that we do sometimes, but We've been a little bit lax on it lately because of travel and holidays and whatnot, but it's it's coming. Just hang on. Cool. So you could do that. Or if you don't have money to do that, that's fine. Don't. That's that's OK. <laughs> it's an option. And it's it's fine. Not a big deal. Um, cool. Well, um, let me slow it way down now to tell you that our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong and our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next time. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Least I would have